Good morning, everyone. We are in the book of Romans. Welcome, everyone, to the uh, morning worship hour here at Victory Baptist Church. For those who are listening online, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, For those members of Victory Baptist Church, feel free to use the Slack chat channel to uh, throw in comments and questions. I will definitely try to look at those questions here And a little bit when we get to kind of closer to the end of the sermon, who knows, I may look at any point in time. Since my notes are on my iPad, I will have access to be able to look over at the chat channel as we are doing this. But we are in the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. I know that with with everything going on with uh, the coronavirus, with COVID-19, I know everything is kind of turned upside down. But... I'm going to try my best to continue on with uh, the book of Romans, at least for Sunday morning. We'll see. uh, Every other service, we're going to do things a little different. We'll change it up. Obviously, for the Sunday school hour, that was, uh, we did that more in a podcast format. We didn't get as far as we wanted to. We didn't get to address everything, but hopefully it was beneficial. Uh, Everyone chatting in the channel was definitely Definitely, uh, definitely made it feel a, a little different than it does right now, just standing here in this empty room trying to preach. But I'm going to do my very best, so uh, be, be gracious, show a little mercy, uh, but hopefully uh, this will, um, we can uh, benefit and help each other. So have the book of Romans open, but I think this is where we're going to start. Start in 2 Samuel. Start in 2 Samuel. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, because I believe if we start this way, it will make the words of Roman, uh, Romans 4 maybe more powerful, uh, or hopefully that will be the, the, the goal this morning, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, here's the danger with going to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Every person listening to me knows this story. And because we know this story... It, 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 it can, can undermine its impact. It, you know, the first time, it's like watching a movie, it, it, it's with anything. The first time you see it, man, the impact. The second time, less of an impact. The first time you read that book, awesome. The second time you read the book, uh, not so much. Same thing can happen with the Bible. The first time, we're shocked. The first time, we have an emotional response. The 9,000th time, we're like, yeah, know that story. But please do everything you can for at least this sermon to set aside what you think, to set aside that, that feeling of familiarity and try to just relive this story as if it's the first time. Because if you do, it will make Romans chapter 4 that much more powerful to you, hopefully, this morning. That's the goal, all right? Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when King... Uh, at that, if I can read right this morning, I'm, I'm, I was making sure my microphone had not fallen off, okay? So let me do that again. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired... At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon. 
and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. All right, now let's stop right here. Now, we can read that. Doesn't do much for us, but let's remind ourselves who this is. This is King David. This is David, right? This is the man who killed Goliath. Right? This is David, uh, the shepherd boy who was used by God mightily. Here is David who was hunted down by the crazy, insane King Saul. But yet David demonstrated such godliness and such character. When he had the opportunity to kill Saul, he did not do so because he was not going to do that to the Lord's anointed. Here's this man that is so well respected. He's a hero. He is so godly. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a man God chose. Right? This, this is such a great man. And here he is uh, you know, exercising his authority as a king. Um, after the year uh, was expired at the time when the kings go forth to battle, David sent his men. They destroyed the children of Ammon. Uh, they besieged Arabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now some will say, wait a minute, why is he still in Jerusalem? Why did he not, not go? We can make a big deal out of that. But just I want you to just remember, this is David. So if you're honest, if you're just reading, if you've read everything up uh, about David up to this point, if you've read the story of David in some kind of a chronological order, if you're honest with yourself, the fact that he's still at Jerusalem probably doesn't even register a concern in your mind. I mean, this is David after all. I mean, he's godly. He's, he's righteous. He does all the right things, right? So you probably don't even go, oh, uh-oh, he's, he's oh, wait, wait, he's... He's at Jerusalem. It probably doesn't even register in your mind. Now, after you read this account, and then you go back to that, sometimes preachers will make a big deal. Hey, see, he wasn't where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be. We'll put him in a situation that he shouldn't have ever been in. And if he'd have been where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be, he wouldn't have been where he wasn't supposed to be, when he wasn't supposed to be there. Therefore, this would have never happened. Yeah, we can say that after the fact, and it's always good. (laughs) People are great after the fact. After the fact, we're experts, right? After the fact, we're experts. Hey, you should have done this, and you should have done this, and you should have done that, and you shouldn't have done there, and you shouldn't have been there. Yeah, after the fact, everyone's, everyone's, everyone's a genius. During the fact, yeah, not, not everyone can, uh, is not as, our vision is not as good during a situation as it is after a situation, right? That's why we have to learn after the fact, and sometimes we don't learn before. That's just kind of the way it works. So here's David. He's still in Jerusalem. All right, 2 Samuel 11, 2. If I said chapter 12, I apologize. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. And it came to pass in the evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. All right, here is David. Now, when we're, now if we're reading this in chronological order, this is where the music gets dramatic and we're like, uh-oh, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Now, we could argue. Yes, after the fact, we could argue, well, David should have been off at war. He would have never been here. He could have, he could have avoided this. 
Well, maybe he could have avoided this one specific situation, but there's a there's probably a high. I, I would think there's a probability that at some point, at some time, the same thing could have happened. Whether it was a time, whether it, you know, when the war was when the wars were over and the time for the king to come back home, this still could have happened. The 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 the, the and this is very important to realize. A the the uh, the moment of temptation. You can take every precaution in the world, but there's always going to be some situation and some circumstance where temptation can occur, no matter what precautions you can take. I'm not saying that that means David should have been sitting at home. For all probability, he probably should have been off at war. But the point is, is this could have happened a million different ways, because look at where he's at. Please note where he's at. Let's read it again. David arose from off his bed, so he's in his bed. He walked upon the roof of the king's house. He's in his house. So he's in his bed in his house. Now, you could say he's supposed to be off at war, but I'm still thinking he's not out like, he's not out looking for trouble. He's there in his own house. Everything is fine. And then he notices a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, again, if you're reading this in order at this point, you're like, oh, no, 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 David, 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 don't. David, come on. You killed Goliath. You're, you, 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 you did right when, when Saul was trying to kill you. Come on, David, this, don't, don't, don't. It's like you're almost like, hopefully you're cheering for David at this point. Hopefully you're cheering for David. But we know, verse 3, David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So someone at this point does speak up and say, wait a minute, isn't she married? And even names the husband. Isn't she the wife of? Verse 4, and David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified for her, from her uncleanliness, and she returned unto her house. Now, yes, there's much debate on exactly what occurred here. Was it consensual? Was it not consensual? Did she have no choice? Did she have a choice? Lots of debate here. No matter how we... Now, obviously, we could look at this if you want to try to increase the level of David's guilt. If he took her, then we... But the text doesn't imply that, or the text doesn't seem to say that explicitly. Some believe it's implied in in, in how the, the Hebrew phrase is here. Whether it was consensual or non-consensual, we can all agree on this. We can debate that, but we can all agree on this, that David, listen, committed adultery. Verse 5. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now the story really gets complicated because he has committed the act, but the act is unknown. 
Nobody knows it other than the people who went and got her. Um, they probably know, and they're not going to say anything because they're the servants of the king, so they probably their life would be at risk, so they don't do anything. Obviously, Bathsheba knows. There's a good chance she's not going to say anything, especially in that day and age, which could probably lead her to being killed. So, so David probably feels re- very confident that nothing is going to happen, right? Maybe he even convinces himself or tells himself, hey, this is a one-time thing. Everything's good. Everything's fine. But then the news breaks. Hey, David, I'm pregnant. Well, uh uh-oh, now the unknown is going to become very known. So what do you do when you know that the known is going to become very, the unknown is about to become very known? What do you do when the unknown is about to become very known? The secret is about to become exposed. What do you do? Well, David, he came up with this solution. Verse 6, and David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. So now he sends uh, for Uriah, and of course he's, he's, he's trying to act all nice. Hey, how's everything going? Tell me, give me a report. I mean, hey, I want to hear from you. Tell me how everybody's doing. Right? Obviously, we've got some deceit going on. Uh, verse 8, And David said unto Uriah, Hey, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house from there and followed him, um, fo- uh, followed him a mess of meat from the king. All right? He even sends him uh, food, you know? Um, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants of his lord and went not down to his house. So David is probably thinking, I mean, we, we, I think it's pretty much implied here, hey, Uriah, go on to your house. Here's some food. Thinking he's been off at war, he's going to come back home, and then obviously he'll spend time with his wife, having relations, and then everything will be covered up. He's obviously trying to cover this up. Pretending to be nice, trying to cover this up. Verse 11, uh, 10, And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why why didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Oh, no, now David's got a problem. He's got a problem because he knows the unknown is about to become known and he's got to figure something out. Now, the the last thing on his mind is confess, acknowledge, accept responsibility. No, he's cover, 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 hide, 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 hide. And we can sit there and, and, and you can condemn him all day, but you, you have to at least realize that this, uh, we've all done it for our entire lives, that when you do something wrong, you typically have a tendency to want to cover uh, said mistake up. So what does David do? And David said to Uriah, Terry here today also and tomorrow, I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem um, that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. So David tries another plan. 
Another plan. Hey, I'm going to be super nice to this guy, give this guy the opportunity, hopefully just let it naturally occur. I won't mention anything and I can be, I can escape. Okay, that didn't work. Plan number two, alcohol. I'll use alcohol. Alcohol will work in this. Alcohol will cause this to happen. I'll get the man drunk. So he's used, he's used deception. He's tried to use being nice and friendly. He's using alcohol. And David's doing all of this to cover up his problem. Verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he writes a letter and literally puts it in the hand of Uriah. Verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. He literally writes a letter that's going to bring about Uriah's death and he puts it in Uriah's hand for Uriah to deliver it because obviously he trusts Uriah won't open the letter and do anything he's not supposed to do. He literally uses the trustworthiness of Uriah against him so that Uriah literally takes the order that will lead to his death. He delivers it. You talk about twisted. You talk about messed up. And this is King David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. King David. A man after God's own heart, King David, getting mad at everyone else because Goliath is out there, you know, blaspheming God and nobody wants to do anything. And David's like, I'll do something about this. That King David. The, the, the king who, who when a, a, a crazed lunatic is trying to kill him, he acts in a godly manner. That, that same King David now. Hey, Uriah. Take this letter. Yeah. And the letter basically says, hey, put him in the hottest part of the, of the battle and, and then retreat, retreat, uh, retreat. Let him and let him stay there to die. Verse 16, and I love the way the text just handles this. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Period. Boom. Over. And then you start in verse 18. Then Joab sent uh, to David uh, all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, when thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, uh, to the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and you say unto thee, Where, uh, wherefore approach ye so nigh unto the city when you did fight? Uh, you... Know ye not that they would uh, shoot uh, from the wall who smote Abimelech? And he, he gives, gives him all of this message. Gives him all, all of this message. David replies, starting at verse 25. Um, look at uh, what David says in verse 25. Then David said unto the messenger, uh, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, uh, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David just goes right along, just as normal. She finds out that her husband had died. Obviously, she probably has no idea that David is the one responsible for his death. She just probably thinks he died in the war. David then immediately calls for her. 
You're going to be my wife. Now, again, she probably didn't have a choice, and we could look at this from a very difficult way, but it's a horrible story. I want you to really, really, really embrace how horrible it is. I want you to really embrace just how bad this situation is. And look at everything David did. And I love just the way the text, like, hey, he died, and then boom, it just, hey, here's the message about it. David sends the message back about what to do. Just life continues. He made, he made the horrible mistake. The, the unknown was about to become known. He stepped in to cover up the, the known to keep it unknown. And then he just goes on with his life as if it's going to remain unknown. And he even make, ter, gets the woman as a wife. David looks like he escapes, but the, the text says, but the thing that he did displeased the Lord. Now, here's the question. A man who does that much wrong, what's his hope? What, what hope is there for this man? What, 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 can, what can ever be done for this man? This man is finished. This man should be done. This man is, is it's, it's, it's over. Well, this man it shows up in Romans chapter 4. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 because this is where we really pick up the story. And, and, and I want you to have that background, even though you know it. I wanted you to read it. Hear it read. Um, read it for yourself because this is where the story really picks up. So, in the book of Romans, now this is crazy. We just talked about David and a man who committed every kind of sin. Wow. We would view this man as, I mean, he's finished. He's done. We don't want anything to do with this man. He's, he, but he's going to be used in the book of Romans, listen, as an illustration of justification. That makes it even more powerful. If you remember, Romans chapter 3. If you remember, Romans chapter 3, we have justification explained to us. And then starting in chapter 4, we have justification illustrated to us. We have uh, justification explained for us, and then we have ju- justification illustrated to us. And here is how Paul just uh, illustrates justification. He starts in verse 1. What shall we say then um, that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? All right. So he starts with Abraham. All right. He starts with Abraham because the Jews obviously would. Abraham was a significant uh, individual. Obviously, he, from him comes the entire you know Hebrew nation. Comes the Israelites. Uh, he, I mean, Father Abraham. I mean, this uh, he is well respected by the Jews. He's well known. So, hey, what did? What did he find? What did he discover? And what did he discover in light of justification? That's going to be the... We've talked... I've illustrated justification. Well, when it comes to Abraham, what did he discover? Did he discover the same thing that I've illustrated to you? Or did he discover something different about justification? Well, look what happens. Look what happens here. Very important. Verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. All right, what did Abraham discover? Well, guess what? If, if, he, if he was justified by works, then Abraham could walk around, he could glory, he could brag, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be before God. It would be just, it would be, hey, look what I've done. Look what I've done, everyone. 
Is that what Abraham discovered? Did Abraham discover the secret in which he could glory and he could brag? Did Abraham discover the secret that he could say, look how good I have been? Or did he discover something different? Well, we see in verse 3, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So this is very important. I want you to write this down. What Abraham discovered is the basis for being declared righteous. Abraham discovered, what is your basis for being declared righteous? What is the basis for you being declared righteous is the same as it was for Abraham. Not what he did, listen, but that he believed it is by faith that he was declared to be righteous. Read it again. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed and it, righteousness was accredited to his account. It was righteousness. He was declared to be righteous. Not that he was, but because he believed God declared him to be righteous. And that is a reference to Genesis chapter 15. This is very important. If we go look at the chronology um, of Genesis from 15 following, this is what we discover. He was declared righteous. Listen, this is very important. And keep this, remember this. He was declared righteous before circumcision. And before he offers up Isaac and his amazing example of great faith, he was declared righteous before he did any of those things because he believed. So the basis of your justification, the basis of you being declared righteous has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with what God does for you. You believe And a righteousness outside of yourself is now accredited to you. And you are declared to be righteous. That sounds like some good news, especially if you're someone like David, right? Well, let's continue in in, in, uh, Romans chapter 4. All right. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. So we have Abraham. We we see him. Verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now, and so now here's a reminder. Say, hey, look, if, if this is done based off work, if this is done based off effort, then it's basically a reward. It's basically a debt owed. Hey, look, God, I did all these wonderful things. You owe me something. You owe me, you know, a reward. You owe me righteousness. But that's not how it occurs. It's not based on what we do. We believe and we are counted, it's counted as righteousness for our account. We are, we are declared to be righteous. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that is that that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, verse five is key because he takes it beyond Abraham and he brings it to us. It's not to those who work, those who believe by faith, you are counted righteous. The basis of your Being declared righteous is faith. The basis of your justification is faith. You are justified by faith alone, grace alone, because of Christ alone. That is the basis. Now, listen. I know you're probably sitting there going, I know all of this stuff. I know you know all of this stuff. 
The reason I'm emphasizing all of this stuff is because what's about to happen in the text. Because what's about to happen in the text is something that we can read right through and it doesn't have any emotional impact on us. And if it doesn't have any emotional impact on us, we've missed the point. You say, okay, great. Abraham, okay, Stacy's been making fun of me because I keep, I'm getting in the habit of doing that when I'm trying to make a point. Okay, but I'm going to make a point here, all right? I'm going to make a point. If you're Abraham, you're like, yeah, Father Abraham, he was declared righteous by faith. But you know, Abraham was really a good guy. I mean, he showed great faith and he was willing to even offer up Isaac. And yeah, he had some little mess ups here and there. But you're not too bothered. You're not too bothered about Abraham being declared righteous. But what about losers like David? What about losers like him? What about losers like us? Yeah, if you're, if you're nice little Abraham, yeah, you're declared righteous, good for you. But what about those of us who aren't so good? Well, Paul jumps from Abraham. Now, this is where he jumps from Abraham to David, and then he kind of returns back to a subject that would relate more to Abraham. So it's really weird the way he does this, but I think there's a point here. I think there's a point here, because he wants us to see the basis of our justification, the basis of being declared righteous, is because it's by faith. But now he wants us to see another word that is emphasized here. Look at what, 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 or you can look at it. Look at verse, let's look at this. Look at verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. And tell me what word is repeated in some form in all of those verses. Now, I, say, I know I just told you to tell me. Um, let me look in the chat and see if anyone actually tells me. All right. <laughs> all right, let's see if anyone actually says anything. They may not, because what we're doing, uh, I'm, not, I'm looking in the chat, and I didn't see anyone saying anything. But if you look carefully at verse uh, 6, it look at verse 7, at verse 8, and verse 9, you look at that, then you'll see that there's a word that's repeated a number of times. Let's look at it. All right, here we go. Verse 6, even as David also described the blessedness, verse 7 saying, blessed, verse 8, blessed, verse 9, cometh this blessedness, now what Paul wants to do is say, okay, what Paul wants to do is show that Abraham illustrates the basis of our justification, but something else illustrates the blessedness of our justification. The basis of our justification is faith, but David illustrates the blessedness, this is very important, the blessedness, of our justification. And what better person to use than David? Abraham's a great illustration of the bases, but he's not so much a great example of the blessedness. Oh, but someone like David, (laughs) now that, that illustrates the blessedness of justification. Because David is the king of losers, right? I mean, he's the king of losers when it comes to, lo- to messing up. 
I mean, David was trying to, he was trying to, it's almost like he pulled up the list of all the commandments and go, how many of these could I break in one night? How many could I break in, 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 over the period of a couple of days? How many of these? I mean, I'm going to go with murder. I'm going to go with deceit. I'm going to go with coveting someone else's wife. I'm going to go with adultery. I'm going to go, I, he's like, I'm going through all of them. Paul wants to use David to say, how blessed the blessing that comes from justification. Now we're going to look at this. We can take the word blessed. Blessed, if we look it up in, in the Greek, uh, there, there's, there's kind of a variation of the same Greek word going on in Romans chapter 4. But it basically means, it's the idea of being happy. It's, uh, it's this idea of being fortunate. It's, it's something that's blessing. It's a positive thing. It's, a, it's, it's something, it's a good thing. It's a fortunate thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that should bring great joy. It's something that should make us happy. It should give us uh, it's a, a feeling that something great has occurred. And we can, we can understand justification, the basis of it from a theological perspective, but we need to get it from the theological perspective to the very practical sense of feeling the blessings from it, that it's something that is blessed. And let's look at exactly how this is described. All right? Here we go. Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Even, now please note, verse 5 is what leads into this. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as, then immediately it transitions into David. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. That is one of the most powerful statements you should read. In fact, when you read that, it's almost like I can almost just, and I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I can almost speculate Paul writing this going, man, this, this is going to be impactful. This is going to be impactful. Because of all the people in the Bible, David is the last one you want to consider righteous. Nobody, if David lived amongst you, was, was around you, and you knew him, and you're like, man, this man, that man right there, you would pull your kids aside and go, that man, stay away from that man. You know what that man did? That man took another man's wife. He took her. And he had the man killed. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. And no, he was righteous. Well, wait, how was he righteous? Well, David tells us how. And he, and he speaks of the blessedness that came from this entire thing. Well, Paul's already given us how, by faith. And in David, look at verse 6, describe the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. David had to be grateful that God would impute righteousness without works because David's works would have condemned him to the 18th level of hell if there's levels of hell. But he's declared righteous. Why? What's the basis? By faith. 
And guess what? That's blessedness. There's a blessing. There's something that we should take joy in, take comfort, rejoice in, find happiness in. David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Verse 7, saying, here's what David said, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man who finds himself in a situation where God is not accrediting your sin. He's not looking at your sin. Yeah, that's, that's a great state of, of, of to be in. He goes on to say, verse 9, cometh, oh, well, well, we'll get back to verse 9 in a minute because verse 9 is going to bring back into Abraham. But uh, we'll, we'll get to verse 9 in just a second. So let's look at these words of David a little bit more careful. The first thing we need to see, all right, is, and, and you may want to write these down so that you, you, know, you know these because I think it's very important, all right? The blessedness, this, the reason that there's a blessing in our justification is, and this is very important, okay, it's a blessing, um, and it's blessedness when the following things happen. And, and, and I just read them, I'll read them, and I'll state them this way. Number one, and that, we have impu- that we get imputed righteousness without works. We receive imputed righteousness without works. We are, we receive, righteousness is imputed to our account without us doing anything. And so David can be declared righteous even though he wasn't. Obviously he wasn't. There's a blessedness that comes there. Second, we, uh, there's a blessing and a blessedness when our sins are forgiven. When our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. When our sins are forgiven, not only, it, uh, not only is there a blessing um, in this whole thing of justification, when uh, we receive a righteousness that's not our own, but our sins are forgiven. Our sins are covered. They don't exist anymore. They're gone. Everyone else remembers them, but God doesn't. Next, um, there is a blessing and a blessedness when God will not impute sin. When it says, will not impute sin, this is how one commentary describes it, on whom the Lord will not charge his sins, or who shall not be reckoned or regarded as guilty. This shows clearly what the apostle meant by imputing faith without works. It is, it is to pardon sin and to treat with favor, not to reckon or charge a man's sin to him, but to treat him, though personally undeserving and ungodly, as though the sin had not been committed. I want you to hear that again. God will not impute sin. On whom the Lord will not charge his sins, or who shall not be reckoned as, as regarded as guilty. This shows clearly what the apostle meant by imputing faith without works. It is to pardon sin and to treat with favor, not to reckon or charge a man's sin to him, but to treat him, though personally undeserving and ungodly, as though the sin has not been committed. That's the whole blessing that comes from this entire system. That's a great blessing. What is the basis? Faith. We believe without works. And then what comes along? We have an imputed righteousness. Our sins are forgiven. And God does not impute sin. He does not consider us guilty. 
Even though we are, he doesn't, God doesn't see us as guilty. He sees us as if the act was never committed. Because the act has been covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ and it's covered by Christ's righteousness. God can't see the guilt. He can't see the act because all of Christ's righteousness is covering it. Now we, we look past the righteousness of Christ and we see the guilt. God looks at the righteousness of Christ and doesn't see the guilt. We get it backwards. We're like guilty, 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 guilty. And and God is like, no, 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 no. Covered in the righteousness of Christ. By faith, not by works, not by what you do. David is the best example of this. It it goes contrary to everything that we feel is right, everything that we feel is just, everything that we feel is fair. Fair. All right, uh, you, we can put it this way, all right? The, the same concept, really, the sa- what, what's happening here in this part about David and this idea of being blessed, basically you have the same thing being expressed in several different ways. There are basically, you, we could understand it this way. There is an offense against God, which is said to be forgiven. There is a filthiness in sin, which is said to be covered. And there is guilt, which is said not to be imputed. All right. There is an offense against God which is said to be forgiven. There is a filthiness in which is said to be covered. And there is guilt in which is said not to be imputed. And when he says, David says, if you look here at verse, um, if you look at verse 7, um, or if we go back to verse 6, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, verse 7, saying, Blessed are they. In other words, they, they were pulling from something. Paul is pulling from something that David had said prior. Okay? And if you go back to Psalm 32, we can see where he's pulling from. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. Blessed. See? Here's this idea, the blessing of justification. We've got the basis, it's by faith. And what is the blessing? The blessing is that, hey, we, we receive a righteousness we do not deserve. All of our sins have been forgiven and, our, and guilt is not imputed to us. That is the blessing of justification. We have to experience that blessing, trust in that blessing, and share that blessing. And now here we go, uh, Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. Blessed, there's David writing. This is a Psalm of David, if you need to look at the title of it. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. Verse 3, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And then if you go down after all of this, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. 
Now, I, I did a devotional message on Psalm 32.8 because I, uh, I had a devotional guy that took that verse so far out of context. That's David saying that he will instruct. He will, he will guide. After David has committed all of this horrible sin, after he realizes blessed is, is, is the man who receives this great gift of God not imputing uh, guilt by covering your sin, forgiving your sin, this very David then realizes, hey, after you've done all of this for me, I'm going to teach others. I'm going to guide others. I'm going to do this. And we, we could get into a whole discussion there. But this is a powerful, powerful passage demonstrating the blessedness that comes from justification. All right, now go back to Romans 4. I could spend some more time in in, uh, Psalm 32, but back to Romans chapter 4. Now, let's write down some practical points here. All right, some practical points. The blessing of justification is a reality we must remind ourselves of daily. The blessing of justification is a reality we must remind ourselves of every day. Because every day, if you're honest with yourself, you don't deserve anything and you're guilty before God. You never will live up to the standard. You will never do enough. You will never do enough. You will never do enough. But there is a blessing that that it's not based on what you do. The blessing comes from a righteousness has been given to you, not by works. That your sins have been covered. And that God will not impute guilt to you. He doesn't see you as guilty. He doesn't even see the wrong that you have done. We got to remind ourselves, this is a, this is the blessing that we have. Everything else can go wrong. That is the blessing we can cling to. We can live in a world right now that's complete, gone crazy, world turned upside down, and we don't know what, we have all kinds of uncertainty about what could happen to our health, what could happen to us financially. We have all kinds of uncertainty, but blessed is this truth. Blessed is justification. We need to see the blessing that flows from justification. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is the child. This is the blessing that we have. We have to remind ourselves of it. Second, we need to view other people through the lens of this blessing. We love the blessing for ourselves, do we not? Oh, we love this blessing. Hey, 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 for myself. Hey, come on now. Come on. I have a right. You need to see the righteousness of Christ. Don't look at my unrighteousness. Hey, come on, guys. Come on, guys. My sins have been forgiven. You need to remember my sins. Hey, God doesn't impute any guilt. You need to stop imputing guilt. We're good at wanting others to see us in that way. We have to see others through this. And it's hard to do. Now, in the Bible, we're like, oh, there's David's sin, but praise God, he's a man after God's... Yeah, because David is removed from us by thousands of miles, and he's dead, right? If he was sitting in your church or a member of your family, trust me, you wouldn't see him the same way. Right? In our culture, David would be in prison, okay? He got a man killed. Maybe for all practical purposes, he had the man killed. 
We've got to see others that way. We've got to remind ourselves of it, but we have to see others that way as well. It's very important. And number three, this is very important. When other questions regarding justification and salvation are presented or come up, we can't come up with a solution that destroys the blessing of justification. When other questions related to salvation, justification, when all of these other questions come up, we can't come up with a solution that literally destroys this blessedness. What do I mean by that? When we come up with, okay, how do we know we're saved? Well, we know we're saved if we do A, B, C, D, E. Well, if I don't do A, B, C, D, E, then I'm not saved. Yes, you're not saved. Wait a minute, that destroys the whole blessedness because the whole blessing of salvation is it's not based on what I do. It's based on an imputed righteousness that I, that, that I get by faith. It's based on the fact that all my sins are covered. It's based on the fact that God will not impute guilt. Well, if you say if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, you're not saved, you're, what you're saying is if you commit certain sins or if you fail to obey God in these following ways, you're not saved, literally destroys the blessedness, the blessedness that comes from justification and turns it into something you have to do and, and some work that you are required to do in order to be saved. If I, have, if I have the righteousness of Christ and all of my failures are covered and God does not impute guilt, he doesn't even see my failure, then what could I ever do that would prove enough that I'm saved? You literally turn around and destroy the very blessing that we are just being handed. The basis is faith. The basis is not works. We were just told that. The blessing is God doesn't do, does, that God imputes righteousness to us, that God covers our sins, and he doesn't impute guilt. Let me read those words again in Romans chapter 4. Let me read them one more time. Even as David described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. I get a righteousness without works. You can't come back to my works and say, well, you're not, you don't have imputed righteousness because you don't do works. I got the righteousness without works. So you can't tell me that my lack of work proves that I never got the righteousness because I was given the righteousness without it. So the, the lack of works can't disprove what I got without them. <laughs> That's, that makes no sense. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and sins are covered. If all of my sins are forgiven and if all my iniquities are covered, then I'm saved. I'm, I, 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 can't, I, I can't come back and go, look at your sins. Your sins now destroy your salvation. They've already been forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. If God does not impute guilt to me, well, then you can't come back and say, well, your failure to do this proves you're not saved. God doesn't impute the guilt. You're imputing the guilt. So, let me go through those again. Number one, we have to remind ourselves daily of the blessings that come from uh, justification. The blessings that come from all of this. We've got to remind ourselves of it. can comfort us when we fall into sin. It can bring comfort. When everything else is going wrong, we have this. This is a blessing that we have that cannot be taken away. Number two, we have to see others through. We have to see others through the lens of this. 
We tend to look at everyone through the lens of the, a, a standard that we place on them. We've got to see people through this lens, the lens of the blessing that comes from justification. And number three, we have to constantly not destroy the blessing of justification by trying to resolve other difficulties when it comes to salvation, sanctification. We cannot come up with a solution that literally, literally destroys this blessedness. And I watch it happen time and time again within Christianity. I used to destroy it myself. How do you know you're saved? You do these 12 things. If you don't do these 12 things, you're not saved. Look at all these people who are not saved. I wasn't looking then through the blessedness of, of, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, with an imputed righteousness, and that God doesn't impute guilt. No, 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 I was looking at it. You, get, you don't do enough of these things, you're not saved. And I used MacArthur's test, Jonathan Edwards' test, and every other test I could come up with not realizing that nobody can pass the test, including me. That's, that's the problem when you start learning theology and you don't start doing theology. You learn theology, you just mimic what everyone else teaches. At some point, you've got to struggle with trying to figure out what the tr- truth is. All right. Now, we're almost out of time. We'll come to verse 9. Because we've got blessedness used one more time here. Now, here comes the question. How do you get this blessedness? How do you get this? Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Well, I can tell you this. He's going to go ahead and answer the question. Abraham received this blessedness before circumcision. Circumcision had nothing to do with this. Circumcision became the sign of this. It's all, in fact, we'll, we'll have to break this down a little bit more next week. But they almost think about this. The way circumcision worked, Abraham's declared righteous, then he gets circumcised. So it was almost to be a sign, it was also almost to be a seal of what he had already experienced. In fact, if you read this, You'll see this kind of play itself out. Um, um, how was this then reckoned when he was in... Uh, I'll go back to verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham uh, for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. This happened when he was in an uncircumcised. Before he was circumcised, he was declared to be righteous because it had nothing to do with what circumcision had nothing to do with this as far as him being declared righteous. What, verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. It was a sign, it was a seal of what occurred. Think of it from, at least from a Baptist perspective, the Baptist perspective of baptism. We don't put, we don't baptize those who haven't been made righteous by faith. We don't do that. Right? That's not how it works. We, we do so, we, we baptize those as a sign, as a seal of the faith which they profess. That's, that's the whole way we do that. That's what they're kind of arguing for here. Now, yes, at some point, circumcision becomes the sign and the seal of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with Israel. 
He made a covenant and they take that sign as a sign and a seal of that covenant. But in this particular case, as it deals with the righteousness and the faith and the justification, circumcision, no, 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 no. Circumcision became a sign and a seal and the way it was ultimately structured as that Abraham had already been declared righteous. Circumcision didn't make him righteous. The circumcision was a proof that he had been declared righteous by faith. Now, circumcision also becomes a sign and a seal of the covenant. Okay? We could get into whole discussion there. All right? And I know that, can, that raises lots of major theological issues. I'm going to get 900 questions from Reformed people who are Presbyterian uh, arguing with me about this. But um, ju- there's no question here what Paul is making an argument. The circumcision came after he was declared righteous. Period. So why was he declared righteous? It had nothing to do with circumcision. Circumcision or uncircumcision, he was declared righteous by faith. By faith. All right. I'll stop right there. Okay. Let's see if there's any questions. Let's see if there's any questions. Let me go. All right. Amen. All right, amen. Someone said, praise God. Yes, praise God, because if it wasn't for God, uh, this is uh, all God. It's not us. If there's something we could do, and, well, I mean, Paul's already argued. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. And it praise God that a man like David, a man like David can say, blessed is the man who God imputes righteousness without works. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who God, who God does not impute guilt. David can say that. And if David can say it, I can say it. You can say it. People you know, people who are in prison right now can say it. People who've done horrible things can say it. No matter what they have done, they can say it by faith. All right, so you need to remind yourself of this blessing. You need to see others through the lens of this blessing and you need to ensure you do not destroy this blessedness when you come up with theological solutions uh, for problems related to salvation. You do not want to destroy the blessedness which God has given to us through justification. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today. Lord, this is a strange day. I know for pastors all around the country, I know pastors are struggling. I know many pastors have expressed uh, in different articles about being discouraged, um, fear that nobody's going to listen, uh, fear that uh, it just doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel like church, are we doing the right thing? I pray first for all the pastors who are struggling and all the decisions they have to make, I pray that their people will be supportive, their people will help them. I pray that members of churches everywhere will do everything they have to do in order to keep the church going with giving, with with just encouraging, with reaching out to one another. Lord, I pray that we use this as a spiritual time and that we come through this hopefully spiritually stronger than we we entered into this. We pray for those who are struggling with uh, the, the coronavirus sickness this morning. We pray for healing for them. We pray for the families who've already lost people. Lots lots of people have already died through this. Uh, We know that there's there's all kinds of things that cause suffering, pain, and death. So we pray for anyone. Uh, We pray that as a church, if there's anyone in our church who uh, is greatly impacted financially by any of these problems, that we as a church would do everything in our power to help anyone who has any needs. And I pray that if they do have a need, they would reach out as soon as possible so that we can start a plan to help them. I pray other churches would do the same thing. 
But Lord, this morning, we just want to thank you for the blessedness, the blessing that comes from justification. A blessing that we do not deserve, a blessing we cannot earn, a blessing given to us because of what Jesus Christ did. I hope that we will be grateful for that, appreciative of that, that we will spend time praising you for that, and that our heart would be filled with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.